everyone, and welcome to Get Outside with Kids. We're really excited today because we've got a wonderful special guest coming up who is going to share with us some amazing scientific knowledge um, from the East Coast of the United States. So I'm really excited about that. Uh, If you're listening in for the very first time, um, this is Jennifer, and we've got Kate here as well, your two co-hosts, who'll be sharing some amazing tips for getting outside with kids. Isolde Trachtenberg believes innovation isn't just about the latest fad. It's about creative thinking and mindful ethical actions. This approach has made her a sought-after speaker, educator, and coach. For years, Isolde traveled the world as a NASA master trainer, transforming people's perspectives on planet Earth through hands-on interactive workdays. Nowadays, you find her speaking at conferences, looking for the next great ocean beach, or singing for hundreds of people, all while interviewing peak performers, on creative thinking, ethical innovation, and environmentalism on her hit podcast, The Innovative Mindset and Creative Earthlings. Thank you for joining us today, Isolde. Thanks so much for having me, Jennifer and Kate. I'm really glad to be here. And thank you for joining us from Brooklyn, New York, on the other side of on the other side of the continent here to us. So uh, different time zones, very different environments as well. For sure. For sure. Yeah. So Isolde, you've got this like you've got this amazing bio. And when we first connected with Isolde, we were like, oh, a NASA master trainer. Like before I dive into the questions, what is a NASA master trainer? Like, like give us a little breakdown of what that exactly means. <laughs> well, what it means is NASA is huge. NASA has lots of scientists and engineers. They're doing incredible things all the time. But a lot of times they're doing projects where they want to invite the general public to be citizen scientists. Well, they need trainers who can work both with the scientists and kind of translate and interpret what the scientists want to the general public, to students. And my job as a master trainer was to go through working for a program called the GLOBE program, which is Global Learning and Observations to Benefit the Environment. I traveled the world and I trained students, teachers, diplomats, physicians, you name it, on how to do this science that that NASA, NOAA, and the National Science Foundation here in the USA wanted done. Because see, the thing is, Scientists want to study the Earth, but they can't get to every corner of the Earth to study it, right? So they need help. The help comes in the forms of students, kids, getting outside and doing the science themselves. And that's how they're able to get this incredible data set that's from all over the world. My job was to train the science to these people so that they could do it. Oh, I love that. I mean, Kate can speak to a lot to working with a scientist and some of her previous roles and being kind of the communications person between the scientists and the everyday individual. Yeah, I used to work on the Great Canadian Shoreline Cleanup, which is a community science-based program in Canada. Mm-hmm. And one of the big things we wanted people to do was go out and collect information about what litter they were seeing on shorelines. And a huge part of that was kids and getting out outside and getting kids connected to environmental problems because they see it firsthand. You know, it's easier for them to think about the litter that they're producing when they're picking something up off a, off a beach and kids just get it, right? They're like, this for doesn't sure. belong here. But I'm really curious, you know, why is kids getting outside, getting outside with kids so important to you? To me personally, kids are, first of all, they're endlessly curious. So getting them outside gets them excited about their environment. They don't necessarily pay attention to it as as something that they're a part of until they're in it. And we tend to spend so much of our time here in New York City, for sure, either going from building to building or just indoors, that getting kids outside and actually observing their environment is life-changing for them, one. Two, it helps them realize that they are the leaders of tomorrow. And I, we, we as adults already know that, right? These kids are the leaders and the decision makers of tomorrow. So we want them to be invested. We want them to be concerned. We want them to be excited about 
planet Earth. And so for me, both of those things are true. Getting kids outside helps them get curious and also getting them outside gets them into that mind frame that this is something they can be invested in, concerned about, and have power to do something about if they realize that it's something they can do. Oh, I love that. That's so powerful and so true. Um, I think with any kind of conservation act, especially when you could really be hands-on and involved with it, that's when you start to see the difference with people because they've actually had that little experience. For sure. Um, and may, maybe on that note then, Isolde, tell us about one of the programs. I know you've worked on a bunch of them and you mentioned the soil science one. Um, like, Tell us how you, you did that. Like, Give us the walkthrough. Like, Here was the science and here's what the kids actually were able to do. And we often don't give kids enough credit, but how were we able to the kids involved and what kind of results were you able to get with that? Sometimes they are life-altering results. Let me let me give you a couple of examples. I was working doing soil science with a bunch of fourth graders in a school in Pennsylvania here in the USA and we were auguring, we were digging down into the soil and about three feet down they found old coke cans and things like that that should not have been there. Well when they found this they realized that after doing some research, and this was a project we all developed, they realized that their school had been built on a landfill and no one told them. Wow. So their, the school itself had been built on a landfill and they, you know, and, and the stuff comes up, right? We cannot help it. The Nothing stays buried, as they say. So the kids themselves took that to the city council and made the city clean up what was under their school because they had discovered it and they did the, the data, they tested the soil pH, we actually went through and did a lot of the science to show that this was not a good thing, that this was not healthy, and the kids themselves pushed through the city cleaning up the landfill on which the school was built. So that's one. Another one that, and this is not just a, a, a macrocosm, if you will, it's more a microcosm. I was doing a an architecture project with a school in, in Columbia, Maryland, and we had one kid who was just unstoppable. He was literally running around the classroom. He was such the class clown, so much energy, and it was energy going everywhere. And the way I start every single presentation I do when it comes to environmental science is I put up a big old satellite image of the earth and the earth showing Africa. And I ask the kids, what do you see? And some say, oh, I see clouds, I see water, I see land. And the kid stopped a minute, looked at it and said, oh, I see the Arabian Peninsula. <laughs> and this was a not a geopolitical map, right? So he was looking at a satellite image and I went, really? You see the Arabian Peninsula? Where is that? And he goes out and he points it out and he goes, yeah, we don't see any geopolitical boundaries here, but that's the Arabian Peninsula. And I went, okay, what are the countries on the Arabian Peninsula? And he goes, oh, well, you're talking Oman, you're talking Saudi Arabia. And he named all the countries on the Arabian Peninsula. And I went, huh. Okay, so to get this kid engaged and involved, we need to bring everything back to geography. And here's what's interesting. We did that. We went outside. We did the field work. They did all the art. Everything I could bring back to geography, I did. And he became my deputy. He became the kid who was most interested and most engaged. And I heard, and this was not a science class. It was a math class. And I heard from the teacher months and months later that the rest of the year, what she had done is anytime she needed him to pay attention, she brought it back to geography and he zoned in he was there he was present he was engaged and he was excited to learn so when they do this work when they do the science when they get outside when you spark their curiosity or something that they're already interested in everything becomes possible i love that story of the kids with the landfill is older how yeah, amazing isn't that amazing 
I mean, you think of city council and if you've ever been to a city council meeting anywhere, you know, sometimes they're a little dry, a little boring, but you imagine a bunch of kids going before them and saying, you need to do something about this. Right, That's exactly. amazing. I love those stories of community science, citizen science, kids actually changing things like that because they understand it with their hands. Absolutely. And also their their eyes, their observational skills. There's another real quick story. I was doing a project where the schools were working together, but they were both along a river and uh, one was a little north, one was a little south. And what was interesting about it is the, the kids to the north were getting very different pH of the water readings than the kids to the south and a whole bunch of different readings as far as the dissolved the dissolved particles. What was in there was very different upriver versus downriver. And they figured out by looking at each other's data that there had been a sewage pipe that had burst and was leaking into the water. And again, the kids themselves pushed their cities to clean up that part of the river. Why? Because they had the data, the actual science, the actual observations from being outside and doing the work to back it up. So the city went, absolutely, let's find it and clean it. Wow. I love these kind of stories because you imagine getting, um, you know, like state scientists or city scientists onto a problem like that. It would take them forever and they'd yeah. have to reach a bunch of conclusions. You know, the, the process of that is very long, but with, you know, this kind of increase in the amount of citizen science tools and community science tools available to people, it's amazing that they can reach those conclusions themselves. You know, science doesn't have to be a bunch of scientists sitting around in a laboratory. It can be kids, right? <laughs> Absolutely. They can do the science themselves, provided that they're doing the science all the same way. Right. Mm -hmm. oh, yes. One of the things that's important, of course, is that when you're doing science, that you know where you're doing the science if you're outside. So GPS, get out there and make sure you know exactly where you are. Because if you're going to come back day after day, for example, and look at clouds, then you want to know where you are. Because standing in one place and looking at clouds doesn't give you the same kind of data is if you stay stand in this place versus that place versus that place it's it's not a usable data set so you want to be doing this following a protocol you want to be doing science in a way that you do it consistently over time whether or not you're one kid or whether or not you're 20 kids as long as you're consistent and following a scientific protocol then the data are valid and are very useful not just to the kids themselves but to the scientists and the rest of the world population so thinking about parents is older who, who might be like wow that sounds cool maybe they've got slightly older kids um you know our kids are uh, all four of our kids between me and jenna under five um but for kids of that age or maybe a little older what tools would you point them towards what what programs are really great that that parents can kind of pick up and start or look into in their area um either in the u.s or other places that that they could kind of dip their toe into this sort of community science world there are a lot of programs and I would, I of course have to plug my old program, the GLOBE program, because that's a K through 12. It's kids from, you can, I've taught three-year-olds and I've taught 80-year-olds how to do the science there. And there are more than a hundred countries participating. Canada is a participating country who participate in this program. And it's pretty easy to do the citizen science. The protocols are there. You can get involved in doing the soil work. You can get involved in doing the, the atmosphere work. All of that is available to you. What's interesting is the beginning early protocols for the younger kids are what they can handle. But as you get older, those same protocols can be made more stringent. They can be made more complicated so that you're getting a different data set that still relates back. The way I look at it, for example, is is clouds again. When you go outside with a four-year-old, you probably aren't going to talk about the difference between stratocumulus and nimbostratus clouds, right? They're going to look at you like, yeah, whatever. But if you have the three 
types of major clouds, right? You have cirrus, cumulus, and stratus. Those are the three that you would look at, the three broad types of clouds. Well, you can describe to a four-year-old, for example, that a cirrus cloud looks like mare's hair. So it looks like a, a mare's tail or a mare's, uh, I can't remember, mane. Uh, cumulus clouds look like bunches of popcorn, and the kids will get it. And if you say stratus clouds look like folded blankets, the kids will get that too. On the other hand, if you start talking about the elevation of clouds, then you're talking about whether or not it's an altro stratus cloud or a zero cumulus cloud, depending on how high above the surface of the earth they are. Older kids can get that, and they can start doing those measurements. And you can measure different ways, but you can do those th that science in a way that will really be substantive and work even into 10th, 11th, 12th grade and beyond. Because let's face it, these scientists, again, they're doing this science and they want the data, but they're doing it because the cloud satellites, for example, they see the clouds from way high down. Only the people on the ground will see things from the ground up. And if you know where you are, where the satellite is and where the ground is, and you go, oh, this is the spot, you can pinpoint the exact kind of clouds there are. And now, for example, the National Weather Service in the USA, they designate over 200 different kinds of clouds. They usually work with 27 different kinds of clouds. We almost always work only with 10, but if you were really gung-ho about clouds, you could go right out there and do all 27 major kinds. 27? 27. Wow, I do not yeah. know clouds. <laughs> and Isolde, I think you actually have a worksheet on clouds that I think would be good, but that has a few of the samples on it that we'll link to in the show notes. So for anyone listening in who's like, I have never heard so many cloud words before, <laughs> uh, me, me, uh, me and Kate felt the same. That's how me and Kate feel. So we will link to um, Isolde's uh, cloud uh, PDF in the show notes as well. So that way, no matter what the ages are you're listening in, you might be starting with five cloud types for the younger kids and working your way up to 27 cloud types uh, for some of the old ones. But we'll put that in the show notes so you can check it out. Three and 10, but yes, absolutely. The, the three for the younger kids are the three broad type clouds. And then the 10 that most of the time we recognize. And it's very, you know, what's interesting about this is that it's very hands-on, but it's also very useful. For example, if you see a whole bunch of very long gray clouds, chances are you're looking at rain. Knowing that, knowing that you're seeing that is a possibility will tell you whether or not you need an umbrella, right? So there's there are actual practical world applications applications for all of this. It's not just pie in the sky, not to make a pun there, but you know what I mean. <laughs> but but it's it's actually super useful right now today whether or not you're five years old or 55. That's a really great point. I mean, here in Vancouver, Jen and I are used to every type of rain. We get every kind <laughs> of possible rain and there's pretty often clouds here. So I guess I'm kind of understand that as older. When you think of kids, you know, and they're going out and they're looking at clouds, what's the value in teaching them how to identify clouds? Like what, how, in your experience, what does that connection to understanding how it all works do for kids? Does it make them more interested, more engaged? Like what's the outcome of learning um, all these details about clouds, for example? It's a great question. And I think the way I would answer it is that they become part of a process and they get to actually do science. And because a lot of kids, especially girls, I have to say, pretty early on start getting the message that they shouldn't be doing science, that they should be focusing on something else. And I'm here to tell you that is just not true, right? So, so that's one of the things. But as far as what will kids know, what will they be able to get out of this? I have to tell you, being being able to empower a child to go, you know what, I can do this too is huge. But also, like I said, if you know 
whether or not it's a cumulonimbus or a nimbostratus, right? Whether or not it's going to be a gentle spring rain or a big old thunderstorm, that's important. And I've had kids when I've taught them this go, oh, from now on, I'm going to get to tell you what the weather's going to be. Look at me, right? So they, they it empowers them to be able to go out there and do this. Plus, it in, it empowers them. I never do this with them solo. There's no one kid that goes out and does this. I usually break kids up into teams of five if I can. And the reason I do that is because I have them stand back to back to back to back, make quadrants so they do a little math, and then identify not only the cloud types, but the cloud cover, how much of the sky is covered by clouds. That'll also tell you things. And that all really has real world applications to them if they live in farming communities knowing how much sun there's going to be is a big deal whether or not you're going to need to irrigate whether or not it's going to rain all of those pieces of information become super important depending on, on where you live and how you live so these kids depending on where they are can actually become kind of like poor richard's almanac right they could be the people who are telling the farmers and sometimes that happens i've had kids partner with different farms to tell them that i've also had kids to actually they've we've actually set up in front of nurseries and uh, like garden centers garden stores where they will say come to us we're having a drive to get new band uniforms or whatever they were trying to do we will test your soil and the farmers could bring their soil and the kids would tell them what their soil fertility was their npk nitrate nitrogen phosphorus and potassium their soil ph the color the color tells you what kind of minerals you can expect to have in your soil and they would actually do that testing right there at the garden store farmers could bring it in pay it like $10 and get their soil test done. That is real world application as entrepreneurs, certainly as scientists, certainly, but also as people who are members of their community who can actually do substantive work, not just to be part of the community, but to help it. And they can be eight years old or they can be 18 years old and still have that kind of an impact. Yeah, I really love that the kids can have an impact. I think even as adults, sometimes you, you hear about these huge world problems going on. And every day in the news, there's, you know, even if we just focus on the environmental problems, they feel so big, right? Like mm -hmm. the Amazon's on fire and this is happening. But then you break down these small things that kids can do by getting outside, by participating in the citizen scientist, and they can actually make a difference. And I think the biggest thing for me is like, if a child at five or six or 10 learns that they as a small group or individual can make a difference in their community, mm -hmm. and then they extrapolate that to their learning, imagine how empowered these kids are going to be to think, well, I can make an even bigger difference. I mean, they got, this kid's got a whole landfill filled in as a group of kids. Imagine those kids 20 years from now, what they're going to be working on in their communities and the bigger projects that they're going to feel empowered to take on. And the, the power of conservation when we just start so small, and like you said, give them the power to really do something tangible with their hands outside. Absolutely. And you know what's interesting? You can take all of that, be outside, and you can still apply technology, right? So one of the things that we do, I do a getting green, right? bringing the school into that, recycling, starting a compost pile, getting a school garden, all of that takes place outside but then a lot of kids nowadays are like but i still want my tech so what what i've done with some schools for example as part of them doing their science as part of them being outside and doing these observations we were talking about pollution and so what they decided to do with to finish up their project is they went 
okay, we're going to make PSAs. They made public service announcement videos outside of them talking about why it's important for there to be recycling, for there to be composting, for us to not litter, things like that. So they actually wanted to bring their own interest in technology in. All of these videos were made. They made posters. One, one of my favorite ones, she drew a big trash can and her little cartoon figure and the cartoon figure was standing there with their arms crossed and going let's talk trash and i just love that you know it was so adorable but it was poignant too because here was this 11 year old kid who went i want to do something about this and the winning poster of all of the kids everybody made their own was made into a flyer that they went around to businesses and they posted the business uh, the flyers on the business windows to raise awareness in their community about being outside and about the fact that they needed to take care of their environment. You can't ask for better than that. Wow, that's <laughs> these kids sound amazing. I They're love that it takes <laughs> takes such a uh, like such a small input in some cases to spark that imagination. And to be mm -hmm. honest, as older, I haven't. I mean, my kids are two and nearly five. I have a science background myself and community science, citizen science background as well. But what you're saying is really hitting me that like my five-year-old would be ready for these things. She's ready for some for of these sure. concepts. She's ready to understand that she has an impact because we already talk about it. Um, so it's a really great way of thinking about this, that we can take them outside and sort of start to seed these, these little um, ideas about science and about change and about their impact, even though they're very young. <laughs> for sure. I, I was thinking, Thinking back to, um, you know, the things that my parents instilled in me when I was younger and, you know, the, the kind of environmental concepts that they they told me about at that age, you know, and in fact, they took me along to see one of the most famous environmentalists in Canada, David Suzuki, when I was 12. And it was life changing to see him speak and to hear him talk about our impact. And this week in Vancouver, I went to an event where David Suzuki was and I was like, I could barely handle it. I was like, I am now in the same room as him. This is amazing. You know, he's a hero of mine. And so thinking about that in terms of, okay, if I want my kids interested in science, if I want them interested in changing the world, there's no need to wait on this. Five is not too young. And how not you describe this in terms of breaking it down into simpler concepts for their age to give them like a little step into it. Um, I love that. I'm so glad. And, you know, it's interesting. Another project that I adore that I don't know if it would happen too much in the Pacific Northwest, but I will say it anyway. One of the things, one of my favorite uh, projects, I guess, it's a big project, it's called Journey North, and it's about looking at monarch butterfly populations and their migration patterns, right? So, so three-year-olds can look at and see and count butterflies. Why wouldn't they, right? And they love butterflies. So one of the things that you can do is if you want to encourage that migration, this cause and effect thing becomes very important. Kids can learn very early that they can make an impact, but also the difference between cause and effect. What if you were to plant a butterfly bush? How would that attract or not attract those monarch butterflies as they go through their migration pattern if you're part of this project. We have butterfly gardens as at many schools that I've worked at. I've encouraged them to plant butterfly gardens because, again, 
butterflies fly a really long way. They need resting places. They need food sources. So this is one way that we can get involved. And also, again, be outside, get our school involved or our parents involved in planting a butterfly garden so that we are part of helping the butterflies do what they need to do. There's a lot of ways that we can be involved in in ways that are substantive and scientific and educational and always as much as possible for me outside. So thinking about that as older, you know, I'm, I love the idea. I mean, I'm imagining with cloud watching that you've got like a whole bunch of kids outside lying down and looking up. But um, <laughs> And, you know, sometimes it's easy when you when you're reading about um, community science projects, you know, when you're reading about things like iNaturalist and it sounds so simple and so easy. But I bet you've got some pretty muddy stories and some things that have not gone according to plan in, in your kind of experiences. Um, you know, what do you think about when you think back on that? Like the times where the weather has not cooperated, you've been caught out by things or your students have surprised you in ways that you didn't expect while you were outside teaching them. I think that one of the things that's really fun for me is when things go wrong because I don't try to solve the problems. I actually ask them how they would solve the problems. So when things go horribly wrong, we think, okay, what do we need to do? And I go, I am not the expert here. You are the experts in your microenvironment. So what happens is we will figure something out. One of the things we needed to do, for example, was we were trying to test pH of the local water body. and the pH paper was dead. It had died. And I went, okay, y'all, what are some ways that we can test the pH of the water? And somebody went, cabbage. Absolutely. Let's go get some cabbage. So we went to the cafeteria. We asked for cabbage. We got cabbage and we were testing the pH of the soil and the water by doing by doing that, right? So you can look at things and go, oh, this is terrible. Or you can look at it and go, this is an opportunity. These are teachable moments. Those are the kinds of things that are super fun because the kids, again, they feel empowered to actually go out and figure out the solutions themselves. And as I said, I have them work in teams. And because I have them work in teams, everybody in the team has different strengths. So when one person is stymied, somebody else might come up with the idea that puts it over the edge and makes it really shine. I love that idea of it's like the child-led solutions to mm-hmm. these kind of problems, you know, and uh Jen, I've already got some, I'm thinking about, you know, our kids getting them together, giving them like, I don't know, scavenger hunts where they're trying to find different plant types or or looking for butterflies at that time, you know, that kind of thing. Um, And how cute it would be to see them all working together. Firstly, very cute. Secondly, very educational for them. So maybe we should get onto that, Jen. Yeah, no, I think that's been fantastic. I feel like we've learned so much from you today, Isolde. Um, So many things to take away. And I think the biggest point for me is like, it can start younger than you think. I think, you know, a lot of, for these things, you think it has to be older, but I think there's lots of things you can do with younger kids to get them excited. But if you're a parent who's listening in who does have older children, I think this is a great way to keep older children excited in the outdoors. Like right now for me and Kate, we kind of get to say if we're taking our kids for a hike or not, because they're you know young enough that they have to go along. <laughs> um, I do imagine as they get older, there might be some more, there could be resistance about going on a long hike as a family. They might not want to do that. But if we can bring in some of these tools about getting outside and doing some science, looking for the clouds, I think this will help to keep kids engaged and outside longer once maybe you've kind of grown past the, the going to the park to play outside stage too. It's like, what are these are other tools that keep kids outside when you're maybe struggling. So I really like that if you're a parent who's listening in, who's like, oh, my kid doesn't want to play at the playground anymore because they're, you know, quote unquote, too old. Um, I think some of these tips and ideas will be like, well, okay, let's not go play at the playground. Let's go do science and make a difference in the world. And that's a 
great way to keep kids outside, you know, past maybe that preschool age group. One of the things that I do in schools is I don't just go, oh, I'm going to just have the fourth graders work with fourth graders. I have the fourth graders mentor the first graders and I have seventh graders mentor the fourth graders and I have 12th graders mentor the seventh graders. And they because each of these science protocol types builds on itself, they are able to teach each other. And what's always fun for me is that by the time kids are older, they forget some of the science. So you'll have the younger kids actually teaching the older ones. It is fantastic. When you see that, I was I was training soils. One of the kids was talking about soil color. And when you know soil color, you start going, oh, you know, you have a lot of red in the soil. That probably means it's oxidized, so lots of iron oxide. So there's probably a lot of iron in that soil. And there, there also can be very green looking soils. And the seventh grader was saying, well, the green soils happen. And this seventh grader was teaching the fourth grader. And the seventh grader was going, well, the green soils happen when there's been a lot of grass and the grass has gotten smushed. And the fourth grader looked at the seventh grader and went, uh, no, it's because there's a lot of copper and the soil is probably waterlogged because when copper oxidizes, it goes green. And the seventh grader went, ah, uh, mouth open and went, <laughs> Yeah, I remember that. And then they went off and they were doing soil color. So together they were able to do all of that. And I just sat back. I went, ah, it's not my job to do this. It's their job to figure it out. If they go wrong, yeah, I'll help them. But they were able to figure it out together. Vastly different ages, vastly different developmental stages, but they still were able to do it. I love that. That's I do. So I cute. love that. <laughs> so before uh, before we wrap up here, because I don't want to forget, tell us where we can find you um, online, Isolda, and where we can find some of these resources you have available. Absolutely. So you can go to isoldat.com, I-Z, I'll say it the Canadian way, I-Z-O-L-D-A-T.com. And you can find me, I do workshops with companies, organizations, and schools, teaching them all about how the environment can be uh, an empowering place for all of us. So I would be excited to hear from you if you're interested in working with me, that would be terrific. And uh, the resources are all there. You can find them at isoldatea.com slash earthlady. And uh, thank you so much for having me. This has been super fun. Thanks so much, Isolda. I think uh, the main takeaways here are you're never too young to introduce science topics to your kids, um, empowering our kids to care about the environment by showing them how they can have an impact is very, is a really powerful thing that we can do as parents and caregivers. Um, and when we take our kids outside, giving them something to do, something tangible and action kind of brings it all home for them and really heightens the education experience. So thank you so much, Isolda. We will link to um, lots of the things that we have talked about and maybe some other community science and citizen science projects in, in Canada as well um, that might be specific to our local area, um, as well as all the resources that you've mentioned. Fantastic. Perfect. Thanks so much, everybody. And if you are listening, make sure you hit that subscribe button for our weekly episodes of Get Outside with Kids. And join us over on Instagram where we shared weekly updates and tips. And we'd love to hear about your messy, muddy mistakes on Get Outside with Kids.